Well, we are continuing our trek through the Gospel of John. We are in the text mere moments away now from the arrest and trial and eventual crucifixion of Jesus. Last week, we looked at uh, John chapter 16. We began at verse 16, and we made it through verse 22. This morning, we will pick up there. We will begin at verse 23 and go through the end of the chapter, through verse 33. If you have your Bibles with you, um, as each week we encourage you, so I encourage you today uh, to open your Bible up and follow along as I read, and then keep it open as we look at different words and different sentences in this text. But if you didn't bring a Bible with you but would like to use one, if you look in the seats in front of you, underneath, you'll find a Bible there. It, uh, it's the same text that I'll be using, and if you use that Bible, you'll find the passage on page 903. This is John chapter 16, beginning at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you go back a few verses to verses 16 to 19, you find there that Jesus has confused the disciples. Now remember, this has been one night. A lot of information has been given to these now 11 men. And as I suspect, perhaps they are winding their way through the dark city streets of Jerusalem, trying to keep up, trying to listen to what he's saying to them. And, and if you go back to those verses, uh, he is speaking to them about leaving. He says, in a little while, and I will leave you. You won't see me any longer. And again, in a little while, and you will see me. And the disciples start questioning among themselves, what is he talking about? He's confusing them, and, and they begin asking specifically, what does he mean by this phrase, a little while? And Jesus, if you were here last week, and you can look in the text now, he answers them, but doesn't quite answer that exact question. As I mentioned last week, he doesn't give them a specific time frame. He, he doesn't say, well, what I mean is in three hours I'll be leaving you, and then 36 hours from now or something like that, and then you'll see me again. He doesn't, doesn't answer that question. And so, as, uh, as I mentioned last week, even to this day, scholars debate as to what exactly he meant by that time frame. However, he does give them an answer. He gives them an answer that I said last Sunday, I think, uh, gives them a picture, a picture of what is about to happen on the cross. The picture that he gives them, the mental image, is of a woman in labor 
delivering a baby. And he says that if you've ever seen a baby delivered, you know that uh, when the child is being delivered, the woman has much grief and sorrow and pain. But he says, however, that labor brings forth a child. It is through the pain. It is through the labor that a child is born. And then when the child has come, joy overwhelms the situation. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying about the crucifixion. That what is about to happen is going to cause you great sorrow. But when I am risen, and once you understand what this is all about, then you will have joy. See, they don't realize this yet, but their situation, think about this, in only a matter of hours, their situation is about to change drastically. In only a matter of hours, uh, this world's history will change. These men, these 11 that are talking to him now, live on the prior side of the cross. These 11, in only a, a few short days, will live on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. All of human history is about to change. An entire new era is going to be brought into play. The, the era of the Spirit. The new covenant that will proceed or, or come forth at Pentecost. All of these things together, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they all co go together. You, you can't, I mean... You can speak of each one individually. Certainly the crucifixion is, is not the resurrection. They are distinguished, but they aren't separated. If you pull any one of those pieces out, you no longer have the complete mission of Christ. And so in that sense, all of them in one sense, everything that is about to happen can comprise that hour or that day when Jesus says everything is going to change. And here you see in, in verses 22 to 24, Jesus says, in that day, meaning post everything that is going to happen, he says, you won't ask of me any longer. But he also says, you will ask of the Father. You won't ask of me, but you will ask of the Father. Now what does he mean by this? Well, first, he says, you won't ask of me. If you look at that Greek word there, which you don't have if you're just reading the English, obviously, but the Greek word there translated ask, when he says, you won't ask of me, the weight there of that word means asking questions, inquiring. Jesus is saying, after that day, the day that's coming, you won't ask me any more questions. See, up till this point, you can only imagine how many questions they've asked him. All, just go back three years earlier when he called them first to himself. They've been following Jesus as his disciples. He's been leading them and walking around uh, teaching them as their teacher. And you can only imagine all of the questions that they've been asking him for three years. They've asked him a lot of questions even this night. And what he's saying is that after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and particularly after the giving of the Holy Spirit, everything that you are now asking questions about will come to light. It will be revealed. You will understand. And we can see this clearly in the rest of the New Testament. If we just read beyond the Gospels, we see that Everything that is talked about in the Gospels, in fact, everything that is talked about in the Old Testament is essentially put on display for us in the rest of the New Testament. In Paul's letters and in the book of Acts, we, we see what it all meant. It's all unveiled to us. And when we read the New Testament, we see a clear demonstration that what Jesus said to them that night turns out to be true. 
That he said, hey, after this happens, all your questions will be answered and you won't need to ask me any more questions. You'll be explaining it to people, and that's in fact true. And we see that happen even before the giving of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 24, immediately after Jesus is raised, prior to the giving of the Holy Spirit, what do we find? We find Jesus walking, the resurrected Jesus, walking on the road to Emmaus with some disciples. And what what does he do? On that walk, he opens up the scriptures to them. At that point, it would have been only the Old Testament. And he explains to them through the whole Old Testament how it all pointed to him. He began unveiling at that moment what it all meant. And then we see prior to his ascension in the book of Acts chapter 1, says that Jesus, prior to him ascending, prior to the giving of the Holy Spirit, he spent 40 days teaching and instructing these disciples what the Scriptures meant, how they all pointed to him. And you can see this same thought in our text today in verse 26, when he says something similar. Again, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Because the second thing he says here is you're no longer going to ask me questions, but you will, on that day, begin to ask of the Father. The Greek word he uses here, still translated ask, is slightly different. The weight no longer is on inquiring or asking questions, but the weight now falls on petitioning, asking the Father for something. Jesus said, you're not going to have any questions any longer for me. However, now you will go directly to the Father and begin asking him for what you need. See, in both texts, there is this common theme in in both uh, our verse here and in verse 26 that the crucifixion and the resurrection not only opens up understanding of the Father and of the Father's plan, But perhaps more importantly, it opens up access to the Father. See, Jesus' work on the cross makes his Father our Father as well. That's a very mind-blowing claim when you look at the rest of the Bible. Because from the beginning, after the fall... What do we see in Scripture? We see immediately after the fall that access to the Father is barred. Adam and Eve, who previously walked in the presence of God and in the garden, are pushed out of the garden no longer to return. In fact, angels are placed there with a flaming sword, barring entrance back into the presence of God. And we see that same barring into the presence of God in the design of the tabernacle. We see it in the design of the temple where there's a huge curtain placed in between the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God's presence resided and anyone daring to enter that presence. In the Old Testament, we see that there's a priesthood and only the high priest could enter in and could cross that veil, that curtain. And he only once a year on the Day of Atonement And only after he had made provision for his own sin by sacrificing for himself. What Scripture shows us all throughout the Old Testament is that sin, our sin, separated us from God the Father. And what we see all throughout the Old Testament is that no one spoke to God the way that Jesus spoke to God when he came on the scene. When Jesus began speaking of God as my Father, it blew everyone's mind. Jesus was praying, Abba, Father. But here we see that Jesus is promising these men, these 11, that he is going to open up the way. He is going to open up the way to the Father such that his Father becomes our Father. And when he dies on the cross... We see in the New Testament that the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Symbolically, 
that shows that Jesus' crucifixion opened up access to the Father. And coming to God, the Father, then in Jesus' name, means that we come to Him through the means that Jesus opened up. It doesn't just mean that we end our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. It means that we come to God the Father by means of Jesus, by means of the cross. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that we understand this morning just how monumental a privilege prayer is. Because I've mentioned before in in other sermons that that prayer is difficult. I think it is for, for a lot of Christians It's a very difficult thing. Our mind wanders. We're not quite sure what we ought to pray for. Sometimes we get overwhelmed. But I think maybe perhaps even more than prayer being difficult, I think oftentimes we just find prayer to be somewhat inconsequential to our lives. How often do we just not even think to pray, much less think about it and then find it difficult? And yet, Jesus is saying, That what I am about to do is going to open up access to the Father in ways that prior to this, no one has had access to the Father. Through me, you will begin praying as I have, Abba, Father. We find this in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It is the Holy Spirit who allows us and empowers us to pray as Jesus did, praying to God as Abba, Father. Now, We can misread this. We pull this out of context. We can misread Jesus saying, whatever we ask, God will give it to us. Some people read that and we think, well, I I ask God for lots of things and he doesn't give it to me and so Jesus must be wrong. What we find if we compare this to the rest of the Bible, we find that we must pray in accordance with the will of God. God's not going to give us something that isn't his will to give us. John, in fact, says this in 1 John uh, chapter 5 and in his letter, verses 14 and 15. He says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests, the requests that we have asked of him. If we ask according to his will, Paul tells us in that passage I just read in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us because when we go to prayer, we don't really know what we ought to pray for. But Paul says the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. And the Holy Spirit, who knows exactly what the will of God is, in a sense intercedes or prays for us according to the will of God. And this means, if we look at it that way, that whatever we ask for, Because the Spirit is interceding for us, we get when we ask it in the name of Christ. It is interesting that Paul uses Abba, Father in this. Because that phrase, Abba, Father, was on the lips of the Lord Jesus. But the one passage that we find that, Jesus saying Abba, Father, is in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. 
It's interesting because the one example that we have of Jesus using that exact phrase from which Paul grabbed that phrase is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus asked God where he was pleading with the Father, please remove this cup from me. And it's that one time when God the Father said to Jesus, no, you must drink the cup. And so Jesus said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus demonstrates in that prayer what it means to pray to Abba Father. Notice, finally, regarding this little section, the connection to prayer and joy. Notice there in verse 24, you haven't asked anything in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That struck me this week because I confess, uh, oftentimes in the past few years, I'm sure it's uh, probably the case with a lot of you sitting in this room, that uh, I have become overwhelmed sometimes by the troubles of this world that we find in verse 33. And when I become overwhelmed sometimes by the troubles of this world, and I'm not praying, then I find that my walk becomes joyless. I lose my joy. I lose the joy in, in being a Christian. I, I become overwhelmed by the problems of this life, but I'm not bringing those problems to God in prayer. Are you, Christian, finding that you lack joy these days? Are you finding that, that instead of walking this life with joy, you're walking this life in despondency, in despair, in depression, wondering what's next around the corner for you or for this world. What I find is that prayer changes that for me. I don't know how exactly it works, but it does. And Jesus promises that it will. Especially, he says, as you receive the things that you specifically pray for. The, the more that I specifically pray for certain things, and I bring those things to God, and I see Him answer those prayers, the more I am filled with joy. And the reason is, is because sometimes this world seems to blot God out of the picture. God is invisible. He is a spirit. And if I'm not praying and seeing God answering my prayer, then I can forget that he is on the throne and that he is sovereignly ordering everything that comes to pass. When I pray and I keep track of answered prayer, I am reminded again and again and again that this world has not stopped the will of God. That he is never overwhelmed by the circumstances of this world or the circumstances of my life. That he is there, that he is on his throne, no matter what is happening in this world. So pray. Pray and keep track of God's answered prayers that your joy may be full. Jesus goes on in verses 25 to 28. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now imagine, if you will, being one of these men and being there that night. Because I think sometimes we, we read their questions and we read their responses that they're asking and, and the things that they're saying and the confusion that they have that night, and I think sometimes we scratch our heads and we say, how can these guys be so dense? How can these guys have not gotten it? How many times does Jesus have to say these things? But we're saying those things on this side of the cross. 
We're saying those things on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the ascension, on this side of the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, on this side of 2,000 years of Christian history. We're saying those things as those who have been the recipients of the Holy Spirit ourselves, who is illuminating the truth of Scripture to us. But imagine being there that night. None of this has happened yet. Jesus acknowledges that. He acknowledges that they're not on that side of the cross. And so he's saying, look, I understand that you don't get it yet. And he even acknowledges that what he's been saying is, has been a bit, a, a bit cryptic to them. He understands. I've been speaking to you a lot in figures of speech, and, and you don't get it. But he says, the hour is coming when I'm not, I'm not going to speak to you this way. But but when that day comes, I'm going to speak to you plainly about the Father. It's interesting that he says, I'm going to speak to you plainly about the Father. But I think what we see, even in John's gospel, and, and again, all throughout the rest of the New Testament, is that this plan and everything that Jesus fulfills comes from the Father, was worked out before the foundation of the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I think sometimes Christians misunderstand God the Father. I think sometimes, and I've run into Christians who, who, who think this way, and I think at times in the past, I even thought this way, that, that God the Father loves me because of what Jesus did for me. That, that God the Father kind of begrudgingly accepts me because Jesus and His work on the cross twists the Father's arm. That God the Father is, is really a, a judgmental and wrathful God and that his son pleads on our behalf and that he then allows us into his presence. But you see, what we find in Scripture and what we find here in the Gospel of John is that Jesus allows us access to the Father who loved his people so much that he gave his son so that they might have access to him. Jesus is the gift of love from the Father. Well, what about verse 27? This may seem to contradict that. Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you, which is what I just said. And then he says, Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And, and if we, again, just read that verse in isolation, it may seem that Jesus is putting our love for God first. That our love for God is the prerequisite for the Father's love for us. But all we need to do is, is look at Jesus' teaching in, in the Gospel of John, and much uh, we can even expand that and again look at the rest of the teaching in the Old Testament to know that he can't mean that. It would make our love the grounds for God's love for us. But 1 John chapter 4, it says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because He first loved us. So what is Jesus saying here? When He, when he says, the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Well, we can read that not in the way that I just explained but we can read that and that what Jesus is saying is that our love for him, our belief that he is who he says he is, which are both components of true biblical faith, is the evidence that God the Father loved us from before the foundation of the world. That our love for Jesus, that our belief that he is who he says he is, is the evidence that God loves us. See, think of it this way. We could see the heavyweight champion of the world, walking down the street. And we could point to him and say, look, 
he must be the heavyweight champion of the world because he's wearing the heavyweight championship belt. Now, if we put it that way, somebody might misinterpret us to be saying that the belt made him the champion. Because we said, look, he's the champion because he's wearing the belt. We're not, we're not saying that, though. What we're saying is that the fact that he's wearing the belt is evidence that he, was, that he is the champ. It's like Jesus is saying, the Father himself loves you. How do you know that? Because you love me and believe that I came from God. See, who comes to Jesus? He's already said it. Who comes to him in faith? His sheep. His sheep are the ones who hear his voice. John chapter 10. Jesus said, I told you, speaking to the religious leaders, I told you when you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Notice verse 28. I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. This is a a neat little chiasm here. And this one verse is perhaps the most succinct statement of the gospel that we find in Scripture, and it's perfect for this Advent season. Because Christmas is a celebrating of the birth of Christ in the manger. But that verse... Notice here in verse, or that that birth rather, notice here in verse 28 is the center of this chiastic statement. It's the centerpiece of a plan that originated before the world began. Jesus came into the earth, into this world from the Father. He came into the world, John tells us, by taking on flesh and, and being God with us, humbling himself. By obeying the will of the Father through the help of the Spirit. And that obedience, that humbling of himself, took him all the way to the cross, as Paul says in Philippians. It took him to the cross, it took him to the tomb, and later back to the Father, where now he rules and intercedes on behalf of his people. But when we consider in this statement what Jesus meant What was packed into that statement, I am leaving the world? When we consider how he left this world, that he left the world through the cross, then we realize what a gift of love was given at Christmas. His disciples hear him say this one sentence in verse 28. And they respond in verses 29 and 30. They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly. You're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, that you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. It's kind of comical, in a way, that these guys, it seems, unless I'm misreading this, these guys see this one verse, verse 28, where Jesus speaks a little bit more plainly, they see that verse as the answer to verse 25. In verse 25, uh, when he says, I have said these things in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. Then he gets to verse 28 and they say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and now we do understand. When when we actually understand what Jesus meant by verse 25, that he actually meant after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit, then we realize how way off the mark they were and how Again, almost comical, it is, in fact, their bold proclamation of understanding demonstrates their ignorance. Now, they weren't lying 
This wasn't a lie. They, they probably do understand more now when they say this than they did when they first began following him three years earlier. They probably even understand more at the end of this upper room discourse than they understood at the beginning. He's explained a lot to them. They probably do. But compared to what they will understand, it's laughable. It's, it's like a, a young couple, engaged couple, going to premarital counseling and going through however many weeks that premarital counseling is, and at the end of the last session, they look at the counselor and they say, ah, now we know. Now we know everything about marriage. And the counselor wants to say, are you kidding me? Uh, you will know far more after 25 years of marriage than you do now, even though you know a lot more now than before our first meeting. What do they mean here by this statement, now we know that you do not need anyone to question you? That's a somewhat strange statement, it seemed to me. Well, I think what they mean here, if you think about the way that this, again, instruction has gone for three years, is that they've been asking Jesus a lot of questions. Uh, they've asked him uh, questions about, um, you know, all of the things that he's taught them, and I'm sure they've had many, many follow-up questions. And, and we even see a lot of those questions in, in the Gospels, and Jesus answers the questions. And I think what they mean here is that Jesus is now answering the questions they had but didn't even yet ask. What they're saying is that you know our minds. You know our thoughts. And in doing so, he's demonstrating that he knows all things. Not just what they're asking him. He, he knows what they want to ask but don't ask. And notice what they say to him. They say, this is why we believe that you came from God. Now, why do they believe that? Why, why is that the reason they believe that he, he came from God? Well, because Jesus knows all things. And they're demonstrating here that they understand theology as far as it goes. In his divine nature, Jesus does know all things. Because God is the only one who is truly omniscient. What they're demonstrating here is excellent theology but it's not complete. It's an incomplete theology. And we know that because their theology leaves out the cross. They don't have that in their bag, their theological bag. And this is going to be demonstrated soon. See, they have room in their bag now for an omniscient Messiah but they still don't have room in their bag for a crucified Messiah. He's not there yet. Simply put, the thing that will one day, after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and giving the Holy Spirit, the one thing that will more than anything else evidence that Jesus came from God will not so much be that he knows all things, but it will be the cross. The cross, the one thing that they don't even have uh, room in their minds to contemplate, the, the thing that seems so horrible to them that the Messiah would ever be crucified will become the symbol that Jesus came from God. That he was sent by God not to be the teacher, the, the, the excellent teacher that knows everything, but the prime reason that Jesus was sent from God is to be the sacrifice for sins. That will be the central part in their theology. They don't understand that yet, though. So Jesus, you see, points it out in verses 31 and 32. You can almost sense, I, obviously we don't know tone. We, we don't know what Jesus' tone was here, but you can almost sense uh, that Jesus is somewhat pushing back on them here. Jesus says, do you now believe? Really? Well, you see, behold, 
the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will all leave me alone. Jesus predicts that when trouble comes, it won't be the shepherd that abandons the sheep. It will be the sheep that will abandon the shepherd. Jesus is here speaking of the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. That isn't such an amazing sentence. Think about the power of that sentence. This is God speaking. And God is commanding his sword to be awakened. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Why are they going to abandon the one that they just said is the Holy One from God? What will cause them to run from this one that they say knows all things? The, the one that, I mean, what, Peter already said, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Well, why are they all going to run? Because they don't have room in their theology for a crucifixion. They don't have room for a suffering Messiah. And so when it happens, when Jesus willingly gives himself over to be crucified, they don't say, of course this is happening. They say, how can this be happening? The idea of the suffering Messiah was, was there in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But they couldn't see it yet. Look at the power of this. They have just said and acknowledged that Jesus knows everything and then jesus right after hearing them profess you know everything says well guess what's going to happen to you can you imagine being one of those guys believing that he's omniscient and then he says and looks at you and says you're going to abandon me in my moment of greatest need now how would you speak to them if you were jesus well that's an impossible question because we're not. But just put yourself as you in the same kind of situation that Jesus was in. What if you were talking to someone face to face? Maybe this person was, as far as you were concerned, a close friend of yours. And this person was just showering upon you all of these wonderful accolades and talking about how much they appreciated you, and how much they love you, and how much they want to do for you. And as they were telling you that, you knew because you had information that they didn't know that they were just about to abandon you. That in your moment of greatest need, these people were going to be, become the most two-faced traitors that there could have been. How would you respond to them? What would you say to these friends that you had given three years of your life to if you knew that they were going to abandon you and leave you alone when you most needed them? Would you find it hard to speak kindly to them? Notice how kind and merciful and loving Jesus is. He tells them, you're going to desert me. You're going to abandon me. And you're going to do it in my moment of greatest need and anguish. But he says to them, but I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. What an amazing statement. Verse 33 has got to be one of the best verses in the whole Bible. When I read this passage to the men on the, on the Tuesday morning men's group, we, we immediately went to verse 33. Uh, in some ways, I felt like, well, we might as well just kind of close up the Bible and 
Leave it at that. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, notice, begins and ends this discourse by talking about their peace. When he begins in John chapter 14, he realizes they're troubled. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And here at the end, just before he prays, he says, I said these things to you that you may have peace. Jesus says to them, in essence, don't you see my wayward children? In this world, you're going to have tribulation. This world is going to batter you. It's going to beat you down. It's going to eventually kill you. But I want you to know that in me, despite the fact that you are also in the world, in me, you may have peace. The Christian is a dual citizen. The Christian is a citizen of this world and a citizen of heaven at the same time. The Christian is both at the same time in the world and also in Christ. And Jesus says that in this world, we are going to have tribulation. We already saw that. This world is going to give us lots of trouble. But he says, in me, you will have peace. Christian, where do you find your peace? I asked you earlier, in essence, where do you find your joy? Do you turn to this world for peace? Because Jesus says this world is going to be a source of trouble. If the world gives you trouble and you turn to it for peace, you're not going to find it. He says instead, when this world brings trouble upon you, you find peace in me. One of the things that will give these men peace, he says, I've told you all of these things so that in me you might have peace. One of the things that he's told them is that they're going to abandon him. How will that give them peace? Well, think about it. When they abandon him, they'll be able to look back and see that Jesus told them they would. That what Jesus said that they would do came to pass exactly as he said it. By telling them that, they could know that Jesus was sovereign even over the worst thing that happened to them. That Jesus was sovereign over the worst thing they had ever done. And that's how we, Christian, can have peace in this world. We can have peace during the worst events of our lives knowing that the God who was sovereign over the cross can also be sovereign over what indeed is troubling us. So Jesus tells us, as he told them, take heart. Why? It's not a platitude. The world may tell us to take heart as well, but Jesus gives us reason why. He says, take heart, because I have overcome the world. The Greek word for overcome, it's a word that you know. It's the Greek word Nike. And it means victory. Notice that he says that I have had victory over the world before the cross and the resurrection. He doesn't say, take heart, I will overcome the world. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world prior to the crucifixion. Why can he say that? Because Jesus' victory, even at this point, was assured. And when Jesus says, it is finished, from the cross, he proclaimed victory for all the world to hear. When it seemed like Jesus' greatest moment of defeat on the cross, it was his moment of greatest victory. And when he rose again, as the now risen and glorified Lord with all power and authority, what would he say to those men who abandoned him that night? If you were writing this story, how would it end? If this was a Hollywood movie, right now I'm reading The Count of Monte Cristo, a classic story of revenge, how would this story end if this one was abandoned by these men only to be raised again to new life and unlimited power? What would he say about those who betrayed him and abandoned him? Well, what does he say to Mary? 
the first person he spoke to after he rose. We looked at it last Sunday. Does he say to Mary, go, Mary, tell my deserters that I won and that I'm coming for them? He says, Mary, run and tell my brothers that I have won. Even after they abandoned him, he died to call them brothers. Christian, the same is true for you. If he died for you, then even when you fail him, he calls you brother and sister. Because you see, he wasn't totally abandoned. I'll close with this, verse 32. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Notice that he says the Father is with me. In that moment, when Jesus was talking to them, the Father had been with him. The Father had been with him from before the foundation of the world. John told us that in John 1.1, that the Word was toward the Father, in intimate communion with him. And, And since he had been born, the Father had been with him, communing with him perfectly for 33 years And even then, as Jesus was telling them, you're going to abandon me, but even now as I say these words, the Father is with me. And the Father would be with him. The Father would be with him in the garden. The Father would be with him. He would be with him hand in hand as he stood before the Sanhedrin. The Father would be with him as he had his beard ripped out and as he was spat upon, as he was punched, as he was mocked, as he was stripped naked, as he stood before Pilate, the Father was there. As he was stretched out and scourged until his ribs were exposed, the Father was with him. The Father was with him when the nails went through his arms and legs. Throughout it all, the Father was there helping him and strengthening him. He was not abandoned until he was, until finally, as darkness covered the earth, Jesus fulfilled Psalm 88, 18, which says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, and darkness has become my only companion. See, consider for a moment, Christian, what your Savior did for you when he was undergoing the wrath of God for your sin, at that moment, everyone, including the Father, had abandoned him. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness was his only companion. And he did that, Christian, so that the Father would never abandon you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. We are so grateful that our Lord went to the cross for us. That he suffered and died, that he was abandoned so that we never would be. Father, we pray that you would remind us of that truth, that you would impress it upon our hearts. That when we leave here, we may have a greater desire to honor the one who died for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.